aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. And then he followed him. And he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, no one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not stuff out. Till he leads justice to victory, in his name the nations will put their hope. Then they brought a man who was, brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees said this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by the Elzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not scatter, gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You rude brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. How <laughs> do I follow that? Father, we want to thank you for uh, uh, revealing yourself to us through the scriptures. We thank you that the uh, Bible is infallibly true and that it is the sword of the Spirit. We pray now that as we consider your word, that you would free our minds from things which would distract us and uh, help us to focus on what you're saying, that we might uh, grow in our knowledge of Jesus and our love for him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.
Now, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Professor Richard Dawkins. Uh, Professor Richard Dawkins uh, wrote an article recently where he said some pretty good things about Jesus. Uh, let me tell you what uh, Professor Richard Dawkins uh, said about Jesus and how he described him. He described him, and I quote, as a charismatic young preacher who advocated generous forgiveness, who must have uh, seemed radical to the point of subversion, and it was no wonder that they nailed him. Now, Richard Dawkins claims to be a fan of Jesus. Uh, he, uh, he, he says that he's a person who uh, is impressed by Jesus, that he likes Jesus. Now, if you know anything about Richard Dawkins, you might be surprised to hear that, because uh, the reason that Richard Dawkins is famous is because a couple of years ago he wrote a book which was called The God Delusion. Anyone heard of that book? Anyone read the book? Some of you might have read it as well. Well, The God Delusion uh, is a book which was very popular. It reached its peak number two on the Amazon.com bestsellers list. And uh, millions of people are listening to what uh, Richard Dawkins says about God. He claims to be a fan of Jesus. Uh, and like a lot of people, I guess he appreciates Jesus. He, uh, he loves Jesus' moral teaching. He respects Jesus for how Jesus stood up to the establishment and confronted them and exposed their hypocrisy. But he's also the world's best-known atheist. Uh, he goes on in his article to say that the only reason that Jesus believed in God was because everybody else did at the same time. Uh, don't let me tell you what he said. Let, let's listen to the professor himself. This is what he said, and I quote. He says, of course Jesus was a theist. And you know what a theist is, don't you? That's a person who believes in God as opposed to an atheist who doesn't believe in God. He says, of course Jesus was a theist, but that is the least interesting thing about him. He was a theist because in his time, everybody was. Atheism was not an option, not even for so radical a thinker as Jesus. Now, I found a photograph of Richard Dawkins, which you've all seen already in the service today, haven't you? There's two things I want to say at this point in time, and I need some techo guys up here in a moment. Number one, that computer just beeped, which tells me that it is not plugged into the AC cord, and it's going to die on us very soon. Okay. Number two, I want someone to turn that around so I can see what the screen is actually saying. <coughs> It's not saying anything at the moment. Okay. It's died on us, Andrew. Alright, forget Richard Dawkins and his t-shirt for a moment. Let me tell you what the t-shirt said. Uh, it's a t-shirt which he proudly wears, which says, Atheists for Jesus. Do you like that? Atheists for Jesus. Have you got the screen? This is, this is a technological nightmare this morning. Okay. Now, let's focus on what I'm saying. Let the Checo guy sort out the rest of this. His T-shirt says, Atheists for Jesus. Now, what I find about that is that, in one sense, it's very disarming, isn't it? 
It's disarming because it says, I'm for Jesus. Hallelujah. <laughs> it's, it's disarming because it says, I am for Jesus. I'm a fan of Jesus. I like Jesus. But yet, it's also uh, very dismissive because it's dismissing so much of what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. It's, it's disarming and it's dismissive. And it's no wonder, therefore, that his book sold uh, millions of copies and was translated into 31 different languages. Now, these days, it's very fashionable. Can we get to the back right for a moment? Okay. It's very fashionable these days to say, I like Jesus. I like the things that he said. He said some good things, but I don't believe that he's God. That's just a myth that the church has made up over the centuries. That in itself is disarming because it's saying, I like Jesus, but it's dismissive because it's saying, he's not God. Friends, the Pharisees who stalked Jesus uh, were very dismissive of him, but they were far from being disarming. In fact, they were quite rude towards him. We see that in today's passage, if you want to open up your Bibles, at Matthew chapter 12. Uh, sorry for the typo on the uh, sermon outline. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 to 37. I've called this sermon, uh, What We Say About Jesus Matters. It's not a brilliant title. It took me about three seconds to pick it up. But I think it's the theme of the passage. What we say about Jesus actually does matter. Now, we see that in a few ways in this passage. Um, firstly, in verses 15 through 21, we see what Jesus actually wanted others to say about him. Let me read verses 15 to 21 for you, just to refresh your memories. Verse 15, it says, Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah said, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he leads justice to victory, in his name the nations will put their hope. Okay, so what does Jesus want people to say about him? What does it say in verse, in verse 16, in verse 15? What is it that Jesus wants people to say about him? Nothing much, is it? He doesn't want people to say terribly much about him at all. You might have noticed that in various, on various occasions when Jesus heals a sick person, he says to the person, don't go and tell the whole world about it. Now, why is that so? Well, Matthew says is what it, that it was to fulfil what Isaiah the prophet had said about the coming servant. And there's two things about this servant. First of all, in verse 18, that the coming servant would be anointed with the Holy Spirit, that God would put his Spirit on him. Now, as we've looked through Matthew's Gospel, we've seen uh, the 
unity between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Matthew chapter 1, uh, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was baptised, uh, the Spirit descended upon him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, in him I am well pleased. And then immediately afterwards, in chapter 4 of Matthew, the Spirit led Jesus out into the desert where he was tempted by the evil one. Jesus has the Holy Spirit. And this is in fulfilment of the prophecy of Isaiah. But secondly, in verses 19 through to 21, as Jesus ministers, he is gentle. He is quiet about it. It says there that a, a bruised reed he will not break. Uh, a reed was a measuring rod, and if a measuring rod was, if it was bent or something, uh, it was no good. He'd break it. But Jesus would not break a bruised reed. He was gentle with people who are weak. A smouldering wick uh, he will not snuff out. A smouldering wick is one that's just about to, to die. Jesus won't snuff it out. What it's saying is this coming servant is gentle, uh, he uh, cares for people, he's quiet about what he does, he doesn't announce what he's doing in the streets. Now, when the Pharisees provoke Jesus, he responds fearlessly, but he's careful not to go out of his way to stir up opposition. Uh, when the, the, the Pharisees plotted to kill him, he withdrew. And the reason for that is that Jesus does not want to preempt the opposition against him. He does not want his crucifixion to happen in any time other than God's timing. And so, as Jesus humbly did his work of preaching, teaching, and healing people and driving out demons, he wanted people to come to their own conclusions about who he was. Now, let's look at what those conclusions were. Um, in verse 22, we read that Jesus healed a man who was demon-possessed, who was blind and mute. Sometimes I think I've got problems. Uh, this guy had great problems, didn't he? He was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And Jesus healed him. Now, Matthew, interestingly, doesn't say very much about it. He deals with the whole issue in one, in one verse. The reason is that Matthew is actually more interested in how people view Jesus in response to the healing of this person. They're interested in people's reactions to Jesus. So what did the ordinary people say about Jesus? Well, in verse 23, some of them were really wrestling with the issue. Who is this man that he can heal people, that he can drive out demons? Could he possibly be the son of David? Could he possibly be the promised Messiah? They are wrestling with the issues. Now, some people these days read the Bible very selectively. When they read something which Jesus said, which happens to agree with what they think is right, they say that Jesus is a great teacher. But when they read about the miracles... They say, well, that's not true. That's just made up. But, friends, I want you to see that it was the connection between the teaching of Jesus and his miracles 
that astounded people in his own day. When people say that miracles don't happen, they're quite right. And that is the point. That is what makes Jesus so astonishing and so different. And so the people who witnessed this particular miracle started to come to some extraordinary conclusions about Jesus. Who is this man? Is he the son of David? Now the Pharisees had to put a stop to that. They had to squash that idea straight away. Have a look at verse 24. In verse 24, uh, verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. What are they saying about Jesus? They're saying that he's satanic. Uh, Beelzebub, by the way, uh, comes from Baal worship. Uh, it, uh, it means, it, the original world is Beelzebub. Uh, it's, and it means the Lord of the Flies. Uh, what they're saying is these magicians, then, these Pharisees, they're not accusing Jesus of being a magician. They're not saying people don't believe in this guy, this is just smoking mirrors. You know, that man wasn't really being possessed by the mute, he was just put up to that by Jesus and his disciples. They're not saying this is a fraud, they're saying that what is going on here is spiritual, but the question is whose spirit is behind it, and they are saying that it is by the spirit of Satan that he heals people. Now, what we say about Jesus matters, and that is not a comment that Jesus can simply let pass through without being rebuked. He does have a few things to say about that matter, and I'll just run through briefly with you what, how Jesus responds. First of all, in verses 25 to 26, he simply says, what you are saying does not make any sense. Uh, if I am driving out Satan by the power of Satan, then that means that Satan is destroying himself. And even Satan is not that stupid. Okay? Then he turns the heat up a notch or two. Uh, have a look at verses 27 and 28. Verse 27, uh, it says, And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying that there's two choices Firstly, if I am driving out demons by Beelzebub, then who do your friends drive them out by? Let me explain that. In that time, uh, there were other people who drove out demons. Uh, there were Jewish people uh, connected with the Pharisees who were involved in exorcisms. Uh, we see an example of that, by the way, in Acts chapter 19, uh, with the seven sons of Sceva actually pretended to, to try to cash in on the whole Jesus deal and use his name, and the evil spirit came out and said, well, Jesus, I know Paul, I know that you, I don't know who you are, and turned on me. Okay? So there are other people who were performing exorcisms, but they were very rare, and they were not very effective. 
Yet Jesus performed many exorcisms with a 100% strike rate. And so what he's saying here is this. If I am so successful and so powerful in destroying Satan's kingdom, and if I'm doing that by the power of Satan, then who's powering your things who are less successful, who don't do it as often as I do, who have trouble driving out demons? Who's powering them? Someone less than Satan? And that's what he's saying. And then in verse 28, he says, well, I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, though. And guess what? That means that the kingdom of God is now upon you. So you've got to make a choice. And then thirdly, in verse 29, far from being overpowered by Satan, or empowered by Satan, by driving out demons, Jesus is plundering Satan's household. He says, if a person wants to rob the strong man's house, First he's got to tie up the strong man so he can get the goods out the door. And by driving out demons, Jesus is plundering Satan's household, which means that he has already overpowered Satan himself. He is more powerful than Satan. Now, that's how Jesus responds. I want you to think about the context now, because... Uh, Jesus is confronting these Pharisees and there is a crowd that is watching and listening in. Can you imagine the tension? I mean, I think the Pharisees would have been speechless. They would not have known how to respond to Jesus and the crowd would have been in stunned amazement because no one is used to hearing someone speak to Pharisees in this way and confronting them like this. The Pharisees have already made up their mind about Jesus. It was satanic. But the crowds, they still were not sure. They're still making up their mind. Maybe he is the son of David, maybe he's not. They were still sitting on the fence. So in verse 30, Jesus is frank. You can't sit on the fence. Either you're with me or you're against me. Come look at verse 30. In verse 30, he says, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. There's two choices. Either Jesus drives out demons by Beelzebub, or he does so by the Spirit of God. It's one or the other. You must make up your mind. Now, it's the same today. I, I don't know anybody who I have heard who says that they think Jesus is satanic. You might have heard someone say that. I've never heard anyone except these Pharisees claim that he is empowered by the evil one. That is not common. But there are plenty of people who claim to believe in Jesus, but they say that the miracles never happen, uh, or that he's not God. Um, Bishop John Shelby Spock is a church leader uh, using that category. Uh, he is, he sells books by the truckload and he claims to be a follower of Jesus. Yet, uh, listen to what he says about Jesus. Uh, you can check out his website to find out his books. You don't have to wait for his books. Uh, on his website, apart from denying creation and denying sin, 
and denying the resurrection, he denies a few other interesting key Christian doctrines as well. Have a look at that. you see on the screen? Let me read for you. He says, The virgin birth, understood as literal biology, makes Christ's divinity, as traditionally understood, impossible. What he's saying there is that Jesus is not God. Secondly, the miracle stories of the New Testament can no longer be interpreted in a post-Newtonian world as supernatural events performed by an incarnate baby. So the miracles didn't happen. And thirdly, you like this one, or you won't like it, the view of the cross as the sacrifice for the sins of the world is a barbarian idea based on primitive concepts of God and must be dismissed. Imagine like your bishop saying that, or your church minister. Here is a guy who is a leader, and is now retired, fortunately, but unfortunately that was in the freedom to travel around the world for the moment's ideas. Uh, but here is a guy who you know, professes to be a person who, uh, who loves Jesus Christ. Um, and yet, uh, he dismisses just about everything that there is about Jesus and God. See, the miracles that were performed, uh, the, the Pharisees said the miracles were performed by Satan, but their 21st century counterparts simply dismissed the miracles entirely. They say that they didn't happen at all. It's the same thing. Ultimately, what they're doing is they're dismissing Jesus. Now, friends, I want to move on in the passage because in verses 31 to 32, uh, Jesus says some things which have really over the years disturbed many Christians. Let me read verse 31 for you. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, what do you make of those verses? What is Jesus saying there? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And why is it okay to speak against the Holy Spirit? Why is it okay to speak against the Son of Man? Why is it that that can be forgiven? But it's not okay to speak against the Holy Spirit. Why is it that that will never be forgiven on this age or in the age to come? Uh, I remember a lady who was in a church that I previously pastored who was very troubled by these verses. Uh, her concern was that sometime in her past that she had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and that therefore she had committed the unforgivable sin. And no matter what she believed after that, that she would not be forgiven, not in this age, nor in the age to come. It genuinely troubled her. Uh, I've also known of Christians who have used these verses against other Christians, uh, where they said that if you don't believe certain things about the Holy Spirit, like, for example, if you don't believe in speaking in tongues, or if you don't believe in being slain in the Spirit, if you don't believe that the Spirit has told me uh, certain things which I am now doing, if you don't believe those things, then you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. 
is speaking against the Holy Spirit, and that's the unbelievable sin. Now, that's a great weight to put on anyone's shoulders, isn't it? And uh, you can see how that can be abused. I've said before that context is very important. In fact, if you take a text out of context, what are you left with? You're left with a con, alright? And you've got to be careful, and it's particularly important in passages like this, to, to, to read the passage in its actual context. The context is important because at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' identity as the Son of God is still progressively being revealed. He still refers to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, even Peter uh, was able to deny Jesus three times and yet still be forgiven. Right? But after the resurrection, it's a different matter. Because by the resurrection, uh, Jesus is clearly revealed as to who he is, uh, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I wonder if you might come with me briefly over to Acts chapter 3 for a moment. Just pick me or something in Acts in Matthew 13. Come over to Acts chapter 3. Uh, in Acts chapter 3, this is post-resurrection, it's post the uh, pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and so the, the, the apostles here are genuinely uh, converted and committed to Jesus. They understand Jesus. And uh, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed a man who was crippled. We see that in verse 7. In verse 11, we see that the people around the witness that were astonished at what they saw. And so Peter preached the gospel. Now, the content of this gospel message is quite interesting here. I'll just pull, pull out a few points. Uh, in verse 15... Amongst other things, he said to this Jewish crowd, you killed the author of life, but God raised him up again from the dead. Uh, in verse 17, he says, but you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders act in ignorance. And in verse 19, he calls up on them to repent, to turn back to God, so that their sins might be wiped out. Now that's good news, isn't it? Here are the people who killed the author of life. I mean, you can't reject someone any more than that. But he says, you acted in ignorance, and therefore forgiveness is available to you. Come on back to God, repent, and put your trust in the resurrected Jesus. Friends, the Pharisees, in Matthew 13, were not ignorant about the Holy Spirit. They were eyewitnesses. They had seen a blind man healed, perhaps being able to see for the very first time in his life. They were eyewitnesses. They saw a deaf man begin to hear voices and sounds and birds chirping and little children and so on. They were present as a poor, putrid leper was cleansed, was healed perfectly. To watch as tortured, demon-possessed human beings were liberated in fulfilment of the prophets. 
not just once, not just twice, but a multitude of times, to be a part of that and to say, well, that's the work of Satan. Well, Jesus is saying, you're not ignorant. You've seen the clear evidence of the Spirit of the living God that was on me, and you credit that to the work of Satan. You've rejected God the Spirit. That's not forgivable. And you see, it's specific, so it's talking about a particular time and place, and it's the work of the Spirit as it is being formed through Jesus. Now, someone might say, well, they'll easy on the Pharisees, they didn't mean it. They were just careless words. But in verses 33 to 37, yes, they are words, but evil words, says Jesus, flow from an evil heart. And those words are important. Look at verse 36. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, let me finish by saying that um, in one sense you and I are actually much better off than those Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, sure, they had seen incredible works of the Spirit uh, in terms of the miracles of Jesus, but you and, I, you and I are aware of the greatest miracle that there is, and that is the resurrection. For us, the unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus. When someone dismisses Jesus, they dismiss the Father and the Spirit as well. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, it says that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ denies the Father as well. Such a person is the Antichrist. So what we say about Jesus matters. It matters enormously because it comes from our hearts. Cassie and I had a friend uh, an elderly lady who, um, who loved reading the Bible and who loved praying. Uh, she would tell us that she read her Bible and she prayed almost every day. She said that she believed in Jesus, that she liked Jesus, that she loved Jesus. That's her friend. And as we got to know her better, particularly as she was very sick, and uh, most likely heading towards meeting her together. As we got to know her better, she kept on saying to us that although she loved Jesus, that she was not convinced that Jesus was God. She could not believe that. It's quite stunning, really. So we thought, well, someone who's reading the Bible every day, someone who's praying to God, someone who talks about Jesus openly, uh, we thought that she was okay with God. And we could have uh, said, well, never mind, never mind that she she says a few wrong things about Jesus, who Jesus is, uh, because, you know, in her heart she's okay. She's, um, her heart's in the right place. We could have said that. 
but her heart was not in the right place. What a person says about Jesus flows from their heart. Our friend's heart was in the wrong place. She did not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And that mattered. It mattered eternally. And so, um, we just kept on visiting her, visiting her, talking with her, reading the Bible with her, gently, and I hope lovingly, uh, but really pressing the point to her that she had no choice about who Jesus was. That Jesus was not just a great teacher, that he was God in the flesh who died for her. People today don't accuse Jesus of being satanic. They dismiss him much more politely. The great man, they say, who gave us the world's highest moral teacher, but not God. You and I need to see that clearly for what it is. It is actually a rejection of Jesus. And it's a rejection of Jesus that matters deeply, that matters eternally, people's salvation. So, we need to urge such people to repent. To believe not in the Jesus of their own imagination, not in the Jesus who they would like Jesus to be, but to believe in the Jesus as God has revealed him to us in the Scriptures. He anointed them, the resurrected one, who is God, died for us. More than that, we need to believe that ourselves. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his anointing with the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the miracles that he performed, that he showed he has power over Satan. We thank you for that ultimate miracle when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and thus defeating Satan once and for all. Father God, we pray for ourselves. We pray that we would be people who are clear as to who Jesus is. We would love him, serve him, worship him as God of all creation. And we pray, Father, as we uh, interact with our community, with uh, people who have got ideas about Jesus, but are rejecting who he truly is, we pray that we would be clear to them and lovingly help them to see the reality of the Christ whom they must bow down and worship. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um.